Well, good morning. Thank you, someone. It is good to be here. Um, thank you, Chris, for reading uh, for us today our passage in Romans chapter 14. And it's a lot of verses that we're going to cover this morning. Uh, but if you remember from last week, uh, we talked about that chapter 14 uh, falls in the final sections of Romans 12 through 16, where really the gospel implication of what Jesus has done to save us and to make us his own gets applied to the everyday things of life. And chapter 14, uh, actually really through chapter 15, verse uh, 13, we find this long discussion on one entire subject. Now, this is actually the longest discussion on any subject in this section. So if you start in chapter 12, Paul spends uh, two verses on developing your mind. He spends six verses on a right view of self and the call to encourage each other. He spends 13 verses on how to love one another. Seven verses on the matter of church versus state. Seven verses on how to prepare for Jesus' return. But then when we come to chapter 14 through half of 15, he takes 33 verses to talk about how Christians are to accept one another and support one another when they disagree or when their behavior is not what we might think it should be. Really, basically, how do we get along? How do we, how do we interact with one another when it comes to less essential matters? And so he spends this much time on it. My guess is it's probably a pretty important topic for us to look at. Now, I did a little research this week, and if you uh, do a little research, you'll actually find that there are 45,000 different Christian denominations globally. 45,000 different Christian denominations. Sadly, the church who Jesus has united to himself is probably the most divided organization in the world. And I want to say we're not only divided into different groups, really, instead, in my, in my estimation of what I've seen, instead of really getting on living for the glory of God and trying to win believers who don't yet know Jesus, Christians often waste their time finding fault with other Christians and other churches and really casting shade on them and really and many times even questioning their salvation. You see, this issue that Paul spends the largest amount of time teaching here in Romans in this section is really still plaguing God's people today. And not does it only split churches. I want to say it goes into our homes and into every other relationship that we have. You know, I, was, I had a hard time preparing this week because even as I was preparing this week, Jess and I actually spent most of the week arguing over some disputable matter and who was right and who was wrong. And it's, it's kind of fixed. We're going to talk about that. I was right, I think. No, that's not the answer. That wasn't the answer. I fell into it, yes. Um, I think really as people, and I know myself, we get so ingrained in our preferences that we make them laws and we then impose them on other people. And I think what's even sadder is we often can't even disagree, or we can't even agree what matter is disputable and what matter, who is weak and who is strong in the subject. And this is what Romans 14 speaks into. And Paul speaks into, and he brings up really two issues uh, in the church. And the first idea is a, is a Christian who uh, is free to eat anything versus a Christian who thinks that only Christians should be vegetarians. 
Now, depending on where you're preaching this message or reading this, you know, in Texas, it might sound different than maybe what we think about here in L.A. It might sound silly in different places. Well, when, you know, honestly, actually, when we first moved here, um, what, 11 years or so ago, I didn't even know what a vegan was. Like, I, that word wasn't even in my vocabulary. Someone said I was a vegan. I was like, what is that? You know, like... Um, but you guys know this in our city. Many people, and not just in our city, but around our country now, have made their diet a religion and really disparage others who, for, who are not thinking the same. And whether you're on the side of a meat eater or, or a not meat eater or, or someone that doesn't even eat vegetables, um, if you guys remember Pat, um, um, you know, he was on that side. Um, but maybe, maybe you don't think the other side's crazy, but, but how about when you're having family dinner? Do you consider, or when you're hosting other people, do you only consider yourself and your own things or someone else's imposed dietary restrictions? So that's the one issue Paul talks about. The second issue he talks about is, is keeping uh, the special days holy. So the believers in Rome actually in this time were, were kind of grappling over whether or not the Sabbath was, was, should be on a Saturday or should be on a Sunday. And they kind of had different ideas of what festivals they should celebrate and which ones should be observed and which ones shouldn't. And so as we read these two issues and kind of the first read of it, they sound fairly familiar to to other places in Scripture of like whether you should eat meat offered to idols in 1 Corinthians and where Paul talks about that. And then in Colossians and Galatians, he talks about that and he gives instructions about religious festivals and celebrations and the Sabbath. But scholars agree, and I agree with them, that these things are not actually linked In those passages, he's speaking into a specific issue. But here, he's just using these things as general examples to to reveal to us how we get on two sides of, of different things. And I think Paul intentionally gives general examples because he's not after giving us something of when we should eat or what we shouldn't eat. He's after the heart behind how Christians actually live in community with one another. And how do they deal with things when they're divided over issues? See, it's not about the issue of whether you eat something or what day you decide to celebrate as the Sabbath. It's how do we care for one another when we actually disagree? You see, the issues in Paul's day in that church are are different than the ones that we are in church now. And, And they're not the same that were dividing the church 50 years ago. They're not the same that divides the church now. There's been so many silly Things and hills people have died on over the years in churches. I mean, I remember growing up when I was real little, like, if you, like, played cards or if you danced or if you went to movies, like, that was, like, that was a really big deal. You might not be a Christian if you did that. Or, like, what kind of clothing you wore to church. I remember I had to wear, like, a suit in the morning, but at night I could wear, like, a tie because we could, you know, it was a little bit less casual back then. My mom's here, so she's going to... I told you I was going to call you out, so there you go. <laughs> this is my mom. She hasn't been here in a couple of years, so make sure you say hi. Um, anyway, uh, I'm, <laughs> as I went into high school, we moved from Pennsylvania to Virginia, um, and I had to have my hair cut. I had hair back then. I had a lot of hair. Um, it was very thick. I used actually the thinners to like because it was too thick, but then I think they thinned it too much. I don't know. But I, anyway, I had to actually have my hair cut because if it touched my ears or touched my collar, it was not holy. 
As you think about that, it's even past that. Maybe then we went into like the worship wars in churches. Like which kind of songs are you singing? Like if you sing hymns, you're holy. But if you sing choruses, I don't know. You're probably a little too liberal. Right? Like, and even right now, I think Christians are so divided over so many things. We get divided over vaccines and political parties and gender rules, roles and, and, and so many other numerous things. The specifics have changed, but the problem is still here with us. I think very often we judge other Christians, and often we judge the ones that are closest to us by whether they measure up to something we do ourselves or something that that we want to do ourselves, not forgetting that we are probably not the best role model at that ourselves. But here, God is not after the specifics of these issues. He's after your heart, and he's after my heart, and how we care for one another when we disagree. I want to remind us that God did not intend his people to be clones. He didn't make us clones. He made us each very differently. And as a result of that, we're going to inevitably act differently and think differently about the things that we do and shouldn't do. And the variations of this are a beautiful part of how God reflects his vastness and his greatness of himself and the power of the gospel to really join those who normally wouldn't be together um, in one body. But it also puts tremendous strains on us. And as a result, we struggle to get along and we often judge others based on our preferences and our personal convictions. So what is the answer to this? What do we do when we interact with Christians who think different than us? What is the counsel that God gives us here in Romans? Well, the first thing I want you to see is in verse 3. And it's a call to a change of an attitude. In verse 3, it says this. The one who eats everything must not treat one with contempt, the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. So he speaks into both sides here. And the one, he says, don't treat with contempt. And to the other side, he says, don't judge. As you think about that, regardless of what side you're on, both attitudes are attitudes of pride. It's an attitude of pride that that looks down on the other side and holds ourselves up. And when we live with this pride, what happens is we are quick to defend ourselves. We're quick to make excuses for our actions, and, and often we, we pound the other person with questions that bring them guilt and shame. I know that's what I do. I think if we're honest, we, when we are fighting in this way, and we're, we're looking at a subject, and we're thinking, we're, we are often trying to prove in our own performance that we are acceptable and that we're right. Tim Chester, you guys remember him? Uh, He said there's three main ways that we try to prove ourselves. We try to prove ourselves to ourselves, try to prove ourselves to others, and we try to prove ourselves to God. And I sense that often all three of those things are in play when we're stuck in an argument and when we have an attitude of contempt or an attitude of judgmentalism towards someone else. You see, we want to feel good about ourselves. We want others to to look at us and, and be impressed And really, honestly, at the end of the day, I don't want God to have to work hard to accept me. I want to help him out. I want to be acceptable to God based on what I do and what I think and how I live. I really don't actually want to rely on his grace, even though I want to talk about it. 
You see, the good news here in verse 3 is that God has already accepted you. And not has he only accepted you, he's accepted your brother or your sister that you're having to dispute with. Because neither of you are actually become a better Christian by what you do or what you don't. God has already been gracious to you. And he hasn't given you favor because you were going to do something. He gave you favor because you didn't deserve it and you, did, and you needed it desperately. God says to us, you want my approval, but you cannot earn it. You don't have any choice but to come to me on the basis of what Jesus has done. There's no other way to come to me. There's no other way to be accepted. You see, God's acceptance of our failures is grace, and his grace is free to us. But it was super costly to his son. You see, this grace that we get to receive is not random. It's not cheap. God, God is able to extend this amazing grace because of Jesus' life, because of his death, and because he rose from the grave. And his righteousness now gets imputed to us. And therefore, we are approved. And so is your brother and your sister. They're accepted by God. So the good news of God saying, this is my beloved son in who I am well pleased, gets to be spoken over you and over me because of our connection with Jesus. You see, I think when we truly understand the gravity of what I just talked about, it takes a serious blow to our pride. It takes a serious blow and allows us to move past what we think to start accepting others and not judging them, the people that we have disagreements with. See, what happens when we judge someone else is we often create legalism. Legalism says, what I do and what I can see in your life tells me that you're clean and that you're righteous. But that is not the gospel. That's not the gospel at all. And Jesus deals with this over and over and over again in his interactions with the religious people uh, uh, during his time on earth. And he comes back, always comes back to the same reality that God is not concerned with the external matters. He's actually concerned with the matters of your heart. And Jesus knew that when God changes our heart, what happens is then our external actions change as a result of it. Jeremiah uh, 17, 9 says this. It says, Our hearts are deceitful above all things and beyond cure. As I think about that verse, what that means is there's no matter of talking or arguing or convincing talk that is ever going to change anyone. The Spirit of God is the only one who has the power to change hearts. And the question that we need to consider when we're interacting with our brothers and sisters is, do we trust God um, and to do what he's going to do in someone else's heart? Or do we feel the need that we have to step in and fix it? If Jesus feels like the other believer needs to change something and how they're living or how they're, um, what they're doing in order to accomplish his work, he's going to accomplish that. Jesus will see to it that it gets changed. And the truth is that you and I can't bring about change anyway. We can't bring about change, and so we need to stop arguing about it. And if we probably understood how impure our hearts were, my guess is that we would be less concerned about spending our time looking down on and judging and disparaging others by what they do and what they don't do. 
Now, these verses don't just say, accept it and go on your separate ways. They don't say, agree to disagree and then don't talk to them anymore. That's not the gospel. Not at all. Verse 1 actually says, welcome them in. Basically, fold them into your life without quarreling. In Greek, the, the, little tra- the literal translation in Greek here is, is keep divisive questioning to a minimum. Basically, don't let divisive questioning over non-essential matters create barriers and quarrels and opinions that keep you from fellowshipping with one another. What else is clear here in Romans is that Paul doesn't just say, give up on your convictions. He doesn't just say, eh, whatever. Verse 5, he says, each of them should fully be convinced in their own mind. So Romans doesn't say, uh, you should just, everyone should just think the same thing. Or everyone should find some middle ground of compromise that's not really anything that anyone wants. It doesn't just say, lighten up or let it go. He says, everyone should be sure that they have their own conviction. This word should here is actually a command. Actually, the idea of let everyone be fully persuaded, fully convinced in their own mind. It's the same Greek word that we find in Romans 4, uh, verse 21, where he talks about Abraham and how Abraham grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. It's the same word that Abraham was fully convinced that of what God had promised him and that he lived his life accordingly to what God what he was convinced about God had told him to do. We see the same uh, idea later on in verse 23 in our chapter where it says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. But whatever, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, this is not a call for, for some mushy faith or some, some flimsy convictions where we don't stand for anything and we all just get along. Instead, the call here is for a full conviction of matters of how we are to live for God. Now, as I thought about this, this is kind of crazy because to me, it seems like that actually makes the problem worse. It doesn't make it better. What I've seen in my home and in many churches, what usually happens is the more we're convinced about something, the more we're going to fight for it. And when everyone takes a stand is when war actually breaks out. And usually people with with strong opinions are not the ones that actually tend to get along. When we don't have strong opinions about things, we can easily get along with one another. But God's answer to judgmentalism and and despising others and, and not accepting others is not wavering, it's not indecisive, and it's not uncertain about what to do. It's not just kind of create some type of peace. No, we're called to actually be fully convinced about how God calls us to live. And the question becomes, then, how do we, how do we live in the gray areas of life with conviction? What, what grid do we need to filter things through in order to live this way with one another? I think according to Romans, there's, there's three things that we can look at as a filter. The first is this. According to the, to the whole of Scripture, is what I'm convinced of and what I've what committed to sinful or not sinful? Second one is this. Is it honoring to Jesus? And the third is this. Is this the best way that I feel like God has called me to live in this moment and in this situation? Please understand as I say that, Romans is also not saying that, that we must convince, be 
that we must just like believe everything. It's not saying that we must be fully convinced on areas of sin or areas where God is completely spoken into in other parts of Scripture. But what it's saying is that we must be fully convinced that our way is not the only way to actually honor God. And the only way we should avoid sin is to do this. And we should now impose that on others. It's saying the best, it's saying how can we live the best way we can see God calling us to live and calling us to act in this moment? So let me show you where I get this good work from. All right, so if you look at verse 6, it makes this bold claim uh, that Christians on both sides of these issues that Paul's bringing up are glorifying God in what they do. Verse 6 says this, Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So both sides of this issue are walking in a right standing with God and glorifying him by what they do. By doing the complete opposite, they're both glorifying God. I think this is really hard, um, especially after we've come to a full conviction of what will honor God in my life. What will honor God most in that situation? And we see someone who chooses the exact opposite behavior that we've chosen. And how does that honor the Lord? You see, God gives definitive answers on certain conducts of life in Scripture that are super clear. But there's thousands of other things that we can disagree with and where on both sides can be done actually in the glory for God. And we need to ask, is this sinful or is this a personal conviction? And if it's not sinful, then we believe the best about the other person and we don't argue and disparage them over something that we decided ourselves. Verse 7 through 9 goes on and gives us really the second guideline is, is it honoring to Jesus? Verse 7 says this, for none of us... uh, For none of us live our lives outside alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. What I think is interesting here is that as Paul is is focusing in on here on our relationship with one another within a greater community, um, He talks about, um, rather than talking about each person and how we talk about that as a community like we do often, he focuses on each personal relationship with God. And it's that personal relationship that then drives our care for the secondary relationship that we have with one another. You see, if we think about, if we're just going to be focused on on other believers and and how does this affect them and how, how do what I do care for them, It's not powerful enough to actually sustain us. It it doesn't enable us to live in harmony when we disagree. But when our focus and our reality is that we belong to God, and now because I belong to God, I don't live in isolation. We either live for Jesus or we fail to do Jesus, fail to live for Jesus. We'll understand the magnitude of how I live in honoring to God actually affects other people. So rather than, rather than looking at it from a people first to God thing, it's a God thing to people, to community. Maybe another way to say this is, is in terms of our, 
Our, our vertical relationship with God deeply affects how, how you and I will either help or harm other people. In my uh, reading this week, I came across this story um, from the late 1930s, um, 1930s, 1940s, and there was a king named Abid Azara. I don't know if that's exactly how you say his name, but that's how I'm saying it today. Um, and so, so he was the first king actually to unite uh, the Arabian Peninsula. Now, when he did this back in the, the 30s and 40s, it was about the same time that the, that the oil fields began to be developed in that area. And so that's mean that, that, that many foreigners and, and mainly Americans were beginning to start moving into heavily Islamic countries. And, and many who moved there um, from, from this country were actually Christians. And so early on, uh, as they're there and as they're building these oil fields and as they're developing that whole thing, um, they went to the king and they asked him if they could establish some churches. And so the king told them that he would think about it and they should come back in, in a few years, I'm not a few years, in a few weeks um, for his answer. So in the, in the, in the middle of that, um, some more people went to another group of employees from the oil company, went to the king and asked him if they could have alcohol in the camps, which was also forbidden. And so the king replied to them with this question. He said, if you could either have churches or alcohol, which would you choose if you could only have one? And so the men went back to the company and they, they had a large discussion and debated over this question for many weeks with one another. And after some time, uh, these Americans, they, they come back and they returned to the king and they, they told the king that they would rather have alcohol, which is kind of sad. Um, but, um, but listen to what the king says to them. He says, if you would have ch said churches, I would have given you the permission to have both. But since you chose alcohol, you can have neither. You see, I think what happened is this king actually understood that if people are right with God, they can be expected to live in a responsive relationship with one another and not just live for themselves. But if we don't submit and honor God first, we can't be actually trusted to care for one another. And we need to ask as we're thinking about areas of our life and areas where we're in disagreement is, is am I choosing this life and this moment is it actually going to bring glory to God and honor to God first? I think of, as we think about this, um, you know, the Westminster Catechism and the question like, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God. But it doesn't just end there. It says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's about a joy in the midst of honoring him. Uh, James Boyce says it this way, Honoring God is not a painful, self-denying, grim, or grievous thing, but rather a joy and delight for those who do it. You see, when we live honoring God first, it allows us to actually live an abundant joy and abundant life in every situation. As we, as we think about that, it affects the way that we interact with those who are different than us. So is it sinful, and is it honoring to God? And the third one is this. Is, is this the best way that I think God has called me to live and act in this situation? In verse 8 and 9, Paul brings up life and death as an example of really, really basically the ultimate opposites of life. I think it, it helps us to believe 
There's, there's different sides that can both honor God. Verse 8 says this, if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So he says both, not just one, but both are, experienced, are experiences of believers to the Lord. That is, the glory of the Lord. Through the resurrection of Jesus, both the living and the dead can actually show the infinite value of Jesus. So the point is, if it's life or death, as radical differences as they are, even opposite, yet they both get to display the great value of Christ, if that's the case, then Jesus can get glory from our differences over whether we eat meat or we don't eat meat or we worship on this day or we don't worship on this day or whatever other discussion that we want to have about things. Which he goes on in verse 10 and says, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Basically, he's saying, you need to be personally convinced on how you're living. You need to be fully convinced because you are responsible. You're responsible for yourself, but you're not responsible to convince every, anybody else. Because every person is going to have to give their own account. Which is why he says, don't be the judge. He says, leave that job up to God. Now, I know as you, as you think about this idea of, of being judged, you may say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought people who have trusted Jesus as their Savior are no longer under judgment, are no longer under a condemnation, that Jesus has, has taken our judgment, and so we're no longer condemned, but we're free. And that is completely true. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how can Paul now say that, that Christians must appear before God and give an account? for everything that they've done in their life. What does that mean? Well, the short answer is this. That's a very long discussion. But the short answer is this. There's various judgments spoken of about in the Bible. And the word judge is actually used very differently as well. When, we're, when we think about speaking about judgments, we really get into the area of prophecy, which usually is often an area where churches and Christians divide themselves. Um, how we read scripture as this church is that there's actually seven final judgments mentioned in the Bible. I had a judgment of, of believers at the judgment seat of Christ, a series of judgments on the earth, a judgment of the beast and the false prophet, a judgment of Gentile nations, a judgment of Israel, the final judgment of Satan, and the final judgment of unbelievers at the great white throne of, of God. Now, as you think about these seven judgments, all except for the very first one are judicial judgments, and they involve God's punishment on individuals or nations for specific sins, and the punishments for these judgments always involve spiritual and physical, uh, or physical and eternal death and hell. That's, that's those, those six judgments. But the first of the seven judgments stands differently, and it's different from the rest because it's actually for believers, and it's not about sins, and it doesn't involve spiritual death or suffering. But nonetheless, it is actually a very real judgment where Christians will stand before God and give an account for how they live this life. And they're either given a reward or they're not given rewards for how they live their life. So this is not a judgment where we, where we worry about our eternal salvation. As we know, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We've received that in Jesus already. 
But it is a time in our lives where we're assessed on how we've lived our life to the glory of God. And not, it's, not a, it's not a time where it's assessed on my standards or your standards. It's assessed on what God has told you to do in that specific situation. You know, how he's called you and I to live and what he's revealed to us. You see, the good news is that even in the midst of that judgment, every believer will be vindicated. Every believer will stand upright and accepted in the last day. Even the weakest believer that you know and I know will stand glorious, loved, forgiven, and righteous. That's super good news, but there is also a seriousness for taking personal responsibilities about the decisions that you and I make right now. It's an opportunity for us to actually give back our rewards out of love to the Savior who has given life to us, which is why we're called to have strong convictions of how we're personally to live. And it's why it's called we're we're not to judge others by our convictions. We leave that up to God. And we live in peace and harmony, knowing that the same spirit that worked in your life and that worked in my life has the ability to work in the lives of other believers. Wowzers. That's the worst amen I ever had. Glad that wasn't me. <laughs> Let me get to some good news. <laughs> the good news is that, that we get to now trust God is at work. And so we don't have to do the work. We get to now live in a manner that is different than the world around us. A manner that, that doesn't break relationship um, with people and who are divided over issues with, but rather a people that we get to live unified around the good news of Jesus, who are willingly and, and often continually step into fellowship with those we disagree with. And the good news is that when we don't live this way, um, rather than living out of guilt, we get to now offer and accept forgiveness out of the forgiveness that was offered to you and that we have received in Jesus. And may we be a people, as we think about how to live and how to interact with one another, that we would think about everything and every gift that we have actually comes from God. Our standing before him, our righteousness, our, even our desire to do anything good comes from him, not from us. Because Jesus is the bread of life. He's the one that actually satisfies the hunger of your soul and my soul. Because of what Jesus has done, you and I, those who are in Jesus, have been accepted fully. And so there's no need for us to to change someone else. Our souls get to rest in what God calls us to do in the moment. We get to live our lives and enjoy him both now and in the future rather than spending all of our days arguing over things that don't matter in the long run. And I know that's kind of hard to sit on because we like to have things black and white. But God says you get to be in the middle and you get to still love one another who have different opinions than you. And as a church, that's how we actually display the good news of the gospel to this city. 
that the people who would never be in the same room together are actually in the same room together, caring for one another, living in joy, and, and continuing to tell the good news of Jesus to all who come in. And that's how we live as a church. And that's how you live in your relationship with your wife, with your kids, with your coworkers. And that, we, that we walk in a joy that we've been accepted by God. And that we get to now allow him to do his work in the lives of others. Father, I thank you that, that you so greatly loved us that you sent Jesus. That we get to live a different way that we don't have to be constrained in the things of legalism, that we have to do X, Y, and Z to be approved by you. Father, make us a people that learn how to, to live in joy with one another, even when we disagree. Father, make it clear, too, to us of what are the things that are actually important. And may we walk in those things. And may we have full convictions in those things. May we be a people. May you raise up your church in the city of, of a people that walk differently, that live differently, and that point people to the, their need of a Savior. Father, we thank you uh, that we get to enjoy you forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.